Sometime over the last week, after the seven o'clock cowbells and air horns and clapping couples on their balconies died down each night, I started to hear a baritone echoing off the sidewall of the hardware store a block away on Broadway in 98. It wasn't until Saturday evening, though, when I walked the dog down Broadway itself that I realized that this was no mere living room hobbyist. There were at least a dozen people, properly spaced, including a Mount Sinai ambulance crew on break, who had come to hear this man sing out from his little French balcony on the fifth floor of his building. You forget sometimes living uptown that Broadway Street is also that Broadway, and so it turns out that this man, as I read later, is Brian Stokes Mitchell, a legend, a Tony Award-winning actor and singer. I don't really go to musicals and I didn't know his name, but I'm fairly certain now that he must be some kind of superhero. He was diagnosed with coronavirus at the beginning of April, then he battled through some high fevers for more than a week, and the moment he was better, he flung open his windows and every night onward sang The Man of La Mancha as a tribute to his city and to the people who are busy saving it. The choice of musical seems right for the moment, Coronavirus has made us all so small and absurd. Our little homes are our kingdoms now. Many of us have lost our jobs and maybe our careers, and our carefully constructed hauteur has been, at least for now, laid low by elemental fears about health and survival and safety and family. We are the butt of this global joke. We are all the Hidalgo Don Quixote. And yet, like the deluded nobleman, here we are still toiling and declaiming and tilting at a future that appears to be mocking us. I've got three guests on the trip this week. There's journalist April Jew on the phone from Nairobi talking about her feelings during this uneasy moment in Africa-China relations. There's Brian Ashcraft, an author and editor at Kotaku who has lived in Osaka for almost 20 years on the surreal pain of losing his father in Texas while he is stuck in Japan. And the first guest you'll hear from, my old friend Jason Rezaian, talked to me about the little lessons for quarantine that he picked up in his time in solitary confinement as a political prisoner in Iran. This is Nathan Thornburg, and from Roads and Kingdoms Media, you are listening to The Trip, The World on Lockdown. Now, here is Jason Rezaian. Let's uh, let's start in. When this first happened, I thought about you and thought, okay, well, here's a guy who knows something about solitary uh, confinement. And then I was like, oh, that's a terrible thing to think. Like, this is so different than what Jason had gone through. And then I saw that you wrote this thing uh, about some of the similarities and did that video for the Washington Post. So first question, am I an asshole for thinking of you immediately when I thought of quarantine? Well, if you are, you're not the only asshole out there. <laughs> Great. <laughs> there's there's heard, my solace. <laughs> I heard from a lot of people right off the bat. And, you know, at first it was kind of like, um, you know, friends locally and then, you know, old friends that I'd gone to grade school with back in the Bay, you know, and then people from around the world. And I thought to myself, you know, um, I should probably address this sooner rather than later. I thought the video had had a, a couple really interesting points. One of them was uh, your admonition to be a friend to yourself 
and not an enemy. Like, what is it? Define that for me. What does that look like when you're isolated? Look, I mean, you, you know, all of us have had those moments when we're particularly hard on ourselves, right? Uh, when you're in solitary confinement in a foreign prison, uh, the tendency to blame yourself can can kick in really quickly um, and blame yourself for not being able to figure out how to get out. I mean, there, there's so many things to be upset about uh, and so few that you actually have real control over. And I think that, that the, the underlying message, every time I talk to anybody, you know, friend, relative, colleague, who's been having trouble dealing with the last few weeks is, you know, take control of the, the, the variables of this that you can actually control, right? And one of them is controlling the conversation in your own head, right? Uh, and not everybody is prone to taking that friendly and, um, and, and loving and sometimes sarcastic um, tone with, with, with their own internal monologue but you're going to be better off if you're able to figure out how to do that. And for me, that was a key to surviving that experience. One, seeing the absurdity of, of the situation that I was in. Two, recognizing that uh, there was absolutely nothing that I had done to, to create this situation other than being in the country that I was in. Um, and, and, and three, knowing that I didn't have control over that particular outcome of when I was going to get out. So, you know, you just kind of steal yourself, steal yourself, brace yourself for the long haul. Um, and, you know, it's like it's like going on a trip with somebody, right? You and I have been on lots of trips together. Not together, but you and I have both been on lots of trips. We've been on trips together with other people. And, you know, that really colors the, the, the experience, who that person is, how they deal with, with obstacles and challenges. Um, and so right now, a lot of people are their own uh, their own travel travel companion. How much of these good things that you might have learned about yourself and about a handle, how to handle your shit, how much did it stay with you and how much just evaporated that moment you kissed the tarmac in Germany or, <laughs> or whatnot? Right. Uh, it, 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 it evaporates, but it evaporates slowly. And, you know, I tried to make it a really conscious thing with myself to... Um, to try and invoke that as much as possible. I'm always now the person that when somebody close to me is complaining about circumstances, will tell you it could be a lot worse, right? And um, and even even for me while I was in prison, I mean, I you know, I had uh, this cellmate from Azerbaijan, right? It was the two of us together for 13 months. We didn't have anybody else. And I looked at this guy uh, who you know is like a brother to me now. I haven't seen him since we were released, but we communicate and have a really kind of uh, good and loving relationship based on this this shared experience that we had. I mean, I look across the cell and think to myself, "Well, that guy's in a really shitty place. He he's not getting visits from his wife. His wife lives a thousand miles away. He can't communicate with the guards. He doesn't speak Persian." You know, he, there's a thousand, he doesn't know anything about this country. I've, I've lived in this country for five years uh, and, and understand the norms and the bureaucracy and all this other stuff. Uh, and then, you know, you, you kind of, you kind of uh, think out in extremes and think about what's going on in the rest of the prison and the type of abuse that people are enduring from their, their tormentors. 
Um, and some of that I was saved from because my case took on uh, public high profile nature and so it was harder for them to fuck with me but you know there's always literally there's only one person out there in all seven or eight billion of us that's in literally the worst worst place and you know what that person isn't you and it's not me right uh so that's that's the littlest thing we can be hopeful for and thankful for right now this isn't a contest but we know we wouldn't be winning that one no no, no. and i i i also um saw your reading list recommendation which you know it's funny there's a lot of uh animal crossing and a lot of uh you know sort of um easy superficial delights people are gravitating towards you you went straight for solzhenitsyn yeah uh, oh man <laughs> i mean look i i think so you know yegi was able after she was released to bring me um uh some books and the first uh care package of books was um whatever kind of self-help stuff she could find on the shelf uh stuff i didn't know we even had i mean um the power now right and i'm i'm telling you the power now does not work in prison it literally says on the back like you know thousands of prisoners have found this helpful not this one right <laughs> um amazing and and you know paulo coelho right the alchemist it's a lovely book, you know, you, you read it an hour and a half and it takes you to a really happy place and then you look up and you're like, oh fuck, there's still bars on the windows, right? So I wanted to tap into that, um, that history of injustice, right? I was a tiny little speck on this thousand year continuum that dates back to the beginning of human history uh, of, of um, being... Uh, a little man fucked by huge forces. Uh, so, you know, Gulag Archipelago was a fantastic thing to read and to realize, oh, wow, okay, I am in uh, in the 21st century version of an authoritarian prison. Uh, I'm really glad I wasn't in the, the mid uh, or early 20th century version in the Soviet Union because that really sucked. <laughs> Amazing. All right, all you stockists out there at the independent bookstores, Solzhenitsyn goes in the self-help aisle. The other one I would, I would really recommend is this book, uh, No Friend But the Mountains, by a guy named uh, Beruz Buchani, who was uh, um, an Iranian refugee uh, who was trying to get to Australia and whose boat was taken and, um, and they were taken to Manus Island, which is this... Oh, detention fuck, yeah. island yeah and this guy has written this incredible account uh he wrote it on his cell phone from that island uh published it won australia's biggest uh literary prize uh which ultimately led to him being released and allowed to to go to to new zealand where he is now so i'm, I'm still on that trend of like you know when things get bad read about people who who are going through something or went through something worse than what you're going through because it's really hard to to then get up and and look at yourself in the mirror and feel sorry for yourself how is the situation in iran right now and what are you i know you've been writing a little bit about that like what are you what are you worried about what 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 do you want to see happen there i think that 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 the situation in iran um is as bad as it is uh anywhere and when we say that you know we have to to say as bad as it is in the United States, right? 
Um, the the government there has made choices uh, in favor of the economy and political political expediency over uh, the importance of public health and human lives. So they, you know, they were the the country that was uh, brutally hit most quickly, and I, I think we still don't have a, a very accurate portrait of how bad the outbreak was there, how many deaths there there were. I mean, they say that officially there was about five thousand, but most uh, observers agree that it's at least twice that. Um, and now they've essentially opened back up for business because with a sputtering economy that's been hammered by sanctions uh, for so long, they're not in a position as a government uh, to you know, send out $1,200 stimulus checks to the most vulnerable people of society. Uh, so they're, they're trying to figure out how to muddle through this. Um, as you know, I'm no friend of the Iranian regime. Uh, but I'm also no friend of the Trump administration's Iran policy. Uh, I, I would like to be on the side of normal uh, Iranian citizens uh, who who consistently have been screwed by the policies of their own government and the U.S. government. And I thought this was an opportunity to uh, maybe put politics aside and save some lives um, and maybe in the process release some innocent foreign nationals who are being held hostage much, much the same way I was. Uh, but that hasn't panned out yet. So I'm, I'm pretty nervous about what's happening there and what could happen there over the coming weeks and months. Um, I just hope that, uh, uh, that the worst case scenario predictions of you know more than half of the society uh, getting the virus at some point and the potential for um, a couple of million deaths uh, don't don't pan out. Yeah, I think you've been clearly misreading the situation over here, as our our own American mullahs have their own concepts of what the opportunity is. Right? It's unbelievable to to watch because they're the the way that these uh, two governments right now mirror each other and how they deal with things. You would think they'd be fast friends. <laughs> Maybe, you know, if they can't agree on saving lives, at least we can get some sort of summit about, you know, cronyism and, right, exactly. uh, you know, opportunistic uh, geopolitical posturing. Propaganda, uh, disinformation prop- camp, <laughs> campaigns. I mean, there's a lot we have in common right now. All right. Well, I'm going to let you get back to your many projects. Yeah. I I love uh, reconnecting whenever possible, and, and it's it's just good to to hear your voice, see your face and know that, uh, that we're all getting through this. We'll, we'll survive, but you know, we just gotta be kind to ourselves and each other and, um, and stay the fuck home. I first met April Jew when the trip took me to Nairobi last year. My old friend Rajiv Gala, along with Joshua Obaga, who was the guest of episode 57, had brought me out for an excellent Nairobi night of goat burgers and gridlock live music, and lager beer. I wanted to talk to April again this week because she writes and thinks a lot about Kenya's relationship with China and vice versa. And as a Chinese-American, she's got a super unique vantage point on a marriage that seems rockier than ever this week. As a warning, we had some interference in the audio at points in this interview. Don't worry, it's not your headphones, it's on us. Now here is April. Tell me 
When was the last time you went out on the streets of Nairobi? Um, so I have only been out about once a week to walk across the street to go to the grocery store and come back. Um, I went to the park one time and it was almost a bit uncomfortable. Um, so I've, I've literally just been inside my, inside my compound, inside my house. Why was um, it uncomfortable in the park? It was just weird, you know? Um, Nairobi is kind of uh, weird in that there are so few public spaces and this becomes like ultra clear in, in a time of, um, in, of pandemic under lockdown because um, you, even at this uh, arboretum, at this park, um, you have to pay to get in. And that's kind of the, how everything works in uh, Nairobi. Everything's inside a compound. Everything is behind a gate. Everything is behind some one of those like uh, beep metal detector security like you have to go through security check before you go in any place and you have to purchase something in order to sit down and take up space so it was and that just really became clear one once I realized that there were so few places to go to because all of these malls all of these restaurants everything closed down and so all we had was this um arboretum which you still have to pay a nominal fee to get into and it was just a I think just like a strange collection of people that aren't the normal kinds of people who were there uh, so that was why it was a bit uh, a bit weird but um, so you you have been uh doing reporting and obviously uh living out a, a bit of this nexus of Africa and China tell me mm-hmm. tell me just like what's the what's the brief backdrop of this beef that we're reading about? (laughs) So it's obviously really, really complicated, but I think we can start from the point at which most of us in the world, um, how we're perceiving it right now, which is through, you know, through lockdown, through the only window we have, which is the internet. Um, And what surfaced, I think it was about a week ago, what began surfacing were these videos on social media of and photographs of really um, just horrific images of um, black men, mostly young men who were forced to sleep outside on the streets um, because they had been evicted or kicked out of certain hotels or by their landlords. And of course, all of this, in at least in terms of Kenya, is happening within the backdrop of um, of of this uh, Chinese neocoloniality back at home, back here in Kenya. Um, So that makes it even worse, you know, the fact that things are happening uh, here to make Kenyans, um, you know, there's, it's this whole narrative of uh, Chinese power and of, of demographic invasion. And it is a narrative that is, that has, you know, that's sort of, there is truth to it, um, and it is certainly employed in ways that are co- politically convenient. But there is truth to it, and there are racist incidents here. And and this is so, sort of in the minds, I think, of the Kenyan public. It, of course, makes sense that these, it's like another point on the trend line, right? Like in Guangzhou, you have this, um, you know, just horrible anti-blackness being played out on Kenyans, but also on other Africans. And of course that fits on this trend line that they see, which is 
you know, one of just utter, um, uh, yeah, like disrespect for for Africans. Yeah, and that that colonialism, I I guess, uh, or neo-colonialism, whatever you would call it, is not. It's not like super tucked away. I remember coming from the airport in Nairobi and the first Mm -hmm. billboard on the highway is in Chinese and it's an advertisement (laughs) for a drink that only Chinese people can drink, which is that Kuecho Motai. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. (laughs) And it's so, it's just like, here's something, you know, prime real estate. Not for any other audience besides the visiting Chinese who are coming in. So I I guess I could I could I could see some of that. Now you are a Marylander, um <laughs> but you're Chinese American and I've uh had had the great privilege to go out with you and some some of the other journalists. Yeah. <laughs> you uh, you know, you move uh freely through Nairobi, you're a friend to all clearly um so you have you know you have your own kind of base relationships and people who who get you and know know you but then that ex- that experience i mean does it even before covid and all this crap did it feel you know did it feel um i don't know like kind of yeah 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 vulnerable I, I walking on the streets in nairobi mm-hmm. or yeah and that completely has to do with the kind of interaction we're talking about so for shallow interactions with strangers on the street um i mean yeah even before corona and during corona i would walk outside and people would call me things and um that's that's fine like that's complicated it so shang is a mix of swahili and english and other um, ethnic languages um that's sort of the shape shifting street vernacular um, and there's this word um, I'm currently working on another essay on this called chinku uh, and chinku originally uh, was just to refer to a um, like a, a cheap made in China product um, like yosumi chinku like just a cheap phone uh, but then eventually very recently began also to um, be used towards Chinese and Chinese people. Um, and this word sort of um, evolved into almost sort of convergently evolved to resemble that uh, racist epithet that we know from American history of um, Chinese migrants, immigrants being called chinks. There's like a visceral reaction, I think, for any Asian American who um, who hears that word. Every time I hear that, like, <laughs> I hear that word, I like my like muscles twitch, like my body hears it first. But then I think the more important question is, when is an epithet an epithet? You know, if it's being used to, if people who are using it think that they're using it to punch up. That is some complicated <laughs> shit um, to, to work through. All right, well, let's think about then, <laughs> you know, because obviously unpacking the bad is one part, but what can we do... <laughs> to get past it. I mean, you had talked about, mm. you would talk, you told me about like these WeTrack groups in Guangzhou that were in solidarity with Africans. Like where, uh, where's, yeah, yeah, where's yeah. the good news here? So the good news, the antidote to all of the, the flattening that nationalism and racism and, you know, the ways in which the internet works, just group threat and, all of that. The antidote to that, I think, as uh, trite 
as it is, is really just higher resolution. Like you need the opposite. Actually, I'd written that in, in my essay was that the opposite to sinophobia is not sinophilia. It is nuance. Like what drives fears of other groups of people and what and things like that. And this is, by the way, sort of separate to that conversation of of anti-blackness. Like this does not justify that in any way. But the way in which to um, to move forward is to just, you know, look in higher resolution. What are people doing on the ground? Um, what are people who are perceived to be part of this group? You know, the, I, I've been in WeChat groups with um, Chinese people in Guangzhou, mostly young people who are actively organizing to get, um, uh, to, to be able to find housing for Africans um, to be, who have been evicted, to get food and supplies to them, um, even counseling. There's just, they put up a, you know, the same, I think, in similarly to what we see in a lot of mutual aid groups that are sort of popping up everywhere around the world. Um, it's a solidarity group that's like, okay, this is happening. How can we help these people? Yeah, it's, uh, it's uh, those, those little bombitas of love. <laughs> that's... <laughs> Yes. <laughs> that's what's going to win <laughs> the opposite of yeah <laughs> all right well thank you for talking yeah. to me april and uh stay healthy stay safe stay indoors stay out of that mm -hmm. weird pay-to-play park across the street <laughs> <laughs> that's all i got <laughs> and uh, i need to use what i can yeah best of mm -hmm. luck in this quarantine thank you thank you you too stay safe Dallas native Brian Ashcraft chased a childhood obsession with Nintendo all the way to a full life in Japan. He has been a contributing editor at Wired and Kotaku, is raising a family since almost two decades in Osaka, and is in general one of my favorite explainers and translators of Japanese craft and culture. This shit though, the coronavirus, has brought some very difficult choices to the kind of bicontinental life that he had worked so hard to build for himself. Here's Brian on what has been a terrible year. So, uh, all right, so tell me what is happening in Osaka. I kind of felt like that through, through most of March, I felt like I was living in outer space. You know what I mean? Um, like people were going out to the park, you know. I would look outside my window and there's all the kids who are supposed to be home from school all playing outside together, together. Right. Re and so, recreating the school playground experience. Right. Right just, in front of just, your house. Just like a, a Petri dish right downstairs. And so, you know, it was kind of like, what are, you know, what are their parents thinking? You know, like the kids, it's not like this is vacation, you know, like, like get the kids home, give them something to do, you know. Um, so that was like, really deeply frustrating and so when they kept and you know for for a lot of this the government was still moving full steam ahead with the olympics we're gonna have the olympics you know the olympics are and you know you, you just you, you know you're looking at what's happening around the world and it's like you know thankfully during that period of time japan was doing well but it's like who's gonna come 
you know, who's going right. who's <laughs> to get on an airplane? Olympics <laughs> yeah, right. just with Japanese athletes. <laughs> right, right. Is this, is, like, is this a ploy for the country to win all the gold medals? I mean, I'm <laughs> obviously kidding, but, but like, who's going to come? Who's going to get on an, air, an airplane and come, come here? And, like, what athletes are going to kind of put themselves in that, at, at that kind of risk? And then what had happened was there's a, um, a really, really famous comedian uh, whose name was uh, Shimamura Ken. Uh, and, yeah, I'll put a link into uh, this video of him as an English teacher. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Remember that skit? skit? Yeah. I think it, it got it got bounced around a lot. You might have shared it also, I don't know, uh, after he died, but it's, um, it's one of the great... Uh, uh, Japanese uh, <laughs> English uh, jinglish uh, bits of sketch comedy uh, ever. Um, so yeah, yeah, and and he, you know, he was a really great comedian. And the the thing that's, for example, that one skit in particular, what makes it kind of so remarkable, is that he has a a room full of foreigners, and he who speaks bad English is trying to teach them English, and then they'll pronounce something correctly, and then he corrects it with bad pronunciation, and what. What makes that skit work so well on a comedic level is he could have done like really kind of like cheap, you know, jokes about at the expense of all the foreigners in the room, but it's all the jokes are at his own expense and all the jokes. And it's just a really, really smart bit of comedy. And so when he got sick and then he, he died very quickly after, I felt like kind of everything changed for a lot of people. Well, you've got half your family now is in Dallas, half is in uh, Osaka. Where, where would you rather be <laughs> waiting this so, thing out? Yeah. So, yeah, so the, the kind of the, you know, I, I would rather be in Dallas uh, just, just to be, you know, with my wife and my two kids and um, not, not, okay, not where I'd, I'd rather everyone be all together. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, like at this point, whatever. like wherever, you know, it could be, you know, it could be, um, you know, that, 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 that Arctic hut that, that was in the thing, you know, I mean, wherever it's just like, <laughs> as, long, as long as, as long as we're all together. Um, and yeah, and so that's been, that's been really the hardest thing, which has made, um, you know, this year I was, I was really excited about this year and I thought this year was going to be a really great year. You know, like I've, you know, a new book coming out. I was really excited. And then it just quickly has just turned awful and it's gotten awful and like more and more awful as, as the months have gone on. And so, you know, so my wife's there and the other two kids are there. And so when they kind of closed down that very quick, you know, I felt like a, a sense of relief and, the you know the mayor of Dallas was super transparent about stuff, and they would give these regular updates on how many hospital beds they have, how many ventilators, you know, just super transparent on all the information and very communicative. And so, I felt a sense of relief, um, but um, you know, like when I'd been in Dallas in December and then last summer, I'd been there to help my parents, and so, you know then I, you know, I'm here and we're separated. And then I get like the, you know, like the worst call, you know, it's like, um, you know, your dad has taken a turn for the worse and he's not responsive. And so, you know, it's like out of all the phone calls you can get, that's like the worst. 
Yeah. And then and then then my mom says, "Look, you know, he, he, your dad's not responsive, and uh, church is closed, and you know he may not make it through the weekend, and we can't bury him anyway. So you need to stay where you are." And so, and you know, she didn't want. You know, I have I'm like I'm prescription medicine for asthma. You know, so yeah. she, she doesn't want me to get sick. She doesn't want my wife to get sick. So you you start having like all these conversations that it just feels surreal. And like yeah. you're just talking, you're just you're talking in slow motion. You know, and and you can you're like, and and it, and it there the conversations are really sad, and the conversations are just really frustrating, and um, you know, and so. You know, so since since even, you know, obviously before all this, like I talked to them every single day and mm. I talk, would talk to my dad every single day. And I talked to him the last day he had before, um, you know, he took a turn and then, you know, like y- you and it was like, you know, it was, it was a good conversation. You know, he, he had always had a really great sense of humor and, you know. He's laughing at my stupid jokes and um and then you know the la- the next time that I talked to him you know is like the last time and you know he's not he's not responsive and you know he he tried to open his eyes when he heard my voice you know and so you know it's just, it's just and so it's just it's like it, you know it sucks it just sucks you know and like you know FaceTime is a great way to say hello it's it's like a really rough way to say goodbye you know so it it really really sucks so tell me tell me something about your dad what uh, what what kind of person was he uh, in in life he worked in he tuned pianos until he was in his early eighties he was a piano tuner yeah he was a piano tuner he's a piano technician and that's I, I have uh, to, I, I, is that where the specificity of of knowledge and sort of uh, exactness of your thinking comes from? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. But I, um, he, he worked very hard. You know, he was like the first one in his family to go to college. Uh, you know, he grew up in a house that didn't have a toilet in it. They had an outhouse. You know, um, you know, he put himself through college. He worked. You know, in a steel factory in college. I mean, he he just worked hard, and he really kind of, you know, you see somebody work hard, and you're like, oh, I should work hard as well. You know, really kind of, um, you know, you know, really kind of, uh, really, you know, instilled that into me. And I just remember, like, my my whole life, like, so I, here's the thing. So, like, so I he he was a great pianist. He was, you know, he could he could rebuild pianos. He, you know, could fix them. He could do all this stuff with them, and he could sing and he could play the cello and all this. When I was younger, and I'd see him work on pianos and stuff, I, I never quite got it. You know, like he would, he, you know, he'd take apart a piano action. And since I didn't play the piano, you know, I obviously I love music and stuff, and I I really appreciated what he was doing, uh, and I enjoyed, you know, like I enjoyed his jazz record collection very much growing up. Um, but, uh, I remember like, even as he got older, like seeing him work, like just like just taking a part of piano action or like, you know, restringing a piano or something like that. It was just like muscle memory. 
you know, and he was doing it and he has, he had done it so much that he was doing it without thought. It was as natural as walking or breathing or all these other things. And I just remember seeing, and you know, I I had like lived in Japan for a, a period of time then and I'd written about like, you know, shokunin, the like crafts, the artisan culture of Japan and kind of put that on this like kind of pedestal when that was like at home my entire life. Do you know what I mean? And I, I never, I never quite got it. And then I got it. And I remember like the last few years going back and just watching, like, you know, just watching him work. And he'd kind of look up and he'd be like, what? <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, <laughs> and like, can I help you kind of thing? Um, and just seeing him, him doing that and thinking like, you know, this is really incredible. This is, this is amazing that he has this talent and it kind of sucks that I can't, you know, sing, you know, in key at all. <laughs> but that's a, that's an incredible thought of just going halfway around the world to admire um, this, this sort of deeply committed artisan culture and learning just enough about it to realize that, uh, that that's what you admired about your dad, you know? Yeah. yeah that it, 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 it had been like staring me in the face the entire time, you know, and you, and I, I never, it's not like I didn't appreciate it. I just didn't know what it was. You know, I didn't know what it was. And, and then seeing that and being like, wow, um, you know, that's incredible. It's incredible. It's like incredible that he could do this. He would tune without an, he didn't use a machine. He did everything by ear. Um, and so like, and it was like, as a kid, it was annoying because like, like somebody would be playing a piano on TV and he'd be like, well, that's out of tune. And you're like, <laughs> you're like, it's Bob Dylan. Who cares? You know, like, you know, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know it, it would be like that. It, it, he would, he would, uh, this is, it must be, uh, something to be a piano tuner in a world of untuned pianos. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a special, special <laughs> yeah. challenge. Yeah, yeah. I don't, I, like, I, I think it's like one of those, you know, it's like when you talk to people who have, who develop like really, really refined sense of taste for like coffee and, and, and it's like, it's like, you're like, but it's Dunkin' Donuts coffee. It's good. You know, you should like it. And they're like, no, I can't, I can't do this. <laughs> Could you do me a favor and tell me, uh, tell me your father's name? Uh, my dad's name was Ronald Ashcraft. Well, rest easy, Shokunin. Ronald Ashcraft. Yeah. That's a, that's a hell of a story. All right, yeah. brother. Well, I, I, I wish you well, and I, I hope that you uh, are able to reunite the family uh, sooner, sooner rather than later, and that uh, at least we can start banking on 2021 as uh, being something better than this. Yeah, no kidding, no kidding. No kidding. The trip from Luminary Media and Roads and Kingdoms is hosted by me, Nathan Thornburg. Theme music by Dan the Automator. Episode illustration by Daisy D. Show artwork by Adele Rodriguez. Executive producers are me and Matt Goulding, also of Roads and Kingdoms. As a reminder, for the first time in a very long time, we are free and available on Apple, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, wherever you get your podcasts. That means that your ratings and reviews mean more than ever to us, and I would love to see them. Next week, more stories from lockdown around the world. 
I have been getting great suggestions from everyone about future guests. Thank you. Keep them coming at the Trip Podcast on Instagram or contact at roadsandkingdoms.com. We will meet you there. <laughs>